notebooks or tablets, whatever, your phone out, go ahead and open the version app. Most all the notes are in there. If you're taking notes today, if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Timothy first. We're going to look there, uh, 2 Timothy 2, and then we're going to look at 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 14 and kind of kind of break it all down today. 22 years ago, um, February, this past February, we moved into this building. And uh, the first Sunday we were in this building, we had a morning worship service, and then that afternoon we, had to, we invited the community to the dedication service of our, of our new building. Well, that morning, uh, we all came in here, and, and we, had, we had had a gentleman that had been in service with us for two or three weeks, and he was a rather exuberant gentleman, and, uh, and, but that particular Sunday morning, we were rocking and all through, to insert service, and the choir just sang, and Kim had sang a song or something, and as soon as Kim got finished and the choir was exiting, he was right down here where Brian's sitting. He pops up and he goes, Thus saith the Lord, women shall be quiet in the church. Yeah, right in church. Can you imagine somebody saying that in church? You know? Well, this guy did, and he just kept on. I told him twice to be quiet. He kept on. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just reading one passage about an anti-woman passage after another, after another, after another. I stepped off the platform and I took his, his Bible out of his hand. He had a bunch of notes. He was reading off of his script. And his, I took it out of his hand and he said, thank you and sat down. By that time, I had some ushers that had gotten to us and I just said, nobody, you're done here today. And they picked him up and hauled him out those doors. And so the next Sunday was the first time that I ever approached this subject at all uh, from the pulpit. And uh, that was 22 years ago. I hopefully have learned a lot since then. Uh, obviously, probably not because I'm doing this again, but... Anyway, but here's the thing. There's so much controversy over two passages, basically two passages of Scripture that we're going to look at and we're going to, we're going to break it out today. Um, you know, there are entire fellowships and denominations in Christianity that forbid women to do things in churches. They can't teach. They can't teach a class with men in it. They can't be pastors. They can't serve in all these offices. So the question is always this. Is it biblical? Is it biblical? And if it is biblical, then why have, why have so many people down through the years felt the way that they have felt? And, and so today, i just uh, going to dive into it. And we're going to open it up and look at these passages and kind of see, and then you can make up your own mind. And uh, I do have a roll of duct tape if anybody needs it before you leave today. All right, 2 Timothy 2, look at it. Verse 15 says this, and I'm reading this passage out of the New King James Version, because, and then we'll look at the NIV in the same verse. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a workman or a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Rightly dividing. I can't pronounce the Greek word. It's on the screen there if you want to take a look at it. But it literally means literally cutting straight. In other words, what does it mean? Get to the crux of the matter. Get to the, to the deep. What, is it, what does this mean? We have to know what the passages mean. We've got to understand what the Bible is talking about when we rightly divide the word of truth. The NIV says this, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. The worker, the person, got to be accurate, got to be clear in how we, uh, in our exposition of God's word, we've got to keep the road to ourselves, got to stay in our own lane basically. But we've also got to make it easier for other, other people to follow. And that's what I'm going to attempt to do today. Um, the dividing of the word, and there's been some, some controversy about that word at times because we, well, we've got to divide it, we've got to segment it. But you can't segment the word. 
There's something that is known as the whole counsel of God, and we're going to talk about that today. We've got it. We can't segment the Word of God, but we've got to rightly discern its truth by capturing the spirit of what's being said. So there's three things. And this is kind of a this is kind of a teaching this morning on how to study the Bible, I guess, first and foremost. You've got to understand this, or you're not going to understand anything that I'm talking about today. Three things that have to be considered when you're interpreting Scripture relative to certain topics, or basically any topic, but specifically those that are controversial. The first thing that you've got to consider is this. You've got to consider the whole counsel of God. What does the Word of God say in its entirety concerning any given subject? We've got to understand that doctrine cannot be established on the basis of one particular verse of Scripture. I said this a few weeks ago when talking about the Holy Spirit. You can't establish doctrine based on one passage of Scripture. You can refute one, but you can't establish one. All right? We've got to look at all the Word to rightly divide the truth that's being spoken, not just part of it. The second thing that's got to be considered when understanding Scripture is the context of the passage. Uh, what is the un- entire passage being said? What is it saying? The, the verses above it, the verses below it, the entire chapter that it's captured in. What is the context of that particular passage. And then the third thing is a cultural understanding. Now, I will tell you this, 30, 40, 50 years ago, uh, and even longer, but especially in the last 40 or 50 years uh, ago, culture wasn't something that was considered, basically because the world was a much bigger place then than it is now. We didn't, have, we didn't have the research. We didn't have the understanding. We didn't have the archaeological uh, uh, discoveries and finds. We didn't understand culture of biblical days near as much as we understand it today. So when you're interpreting scripture, especially in these controversial subjects, you've got to be able to understand the whole counsel of God, the context of the passage, and the cultural background of the passage that's being being looked at. Now these two passages that we're going to break into today, uh, there's a lot of, been down through the years, a lot of controversy pertaining to them. Uh, So let's see if I can at least clear up the water a little bit. So Paul made two statements concerning women in the church. 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Timothy 2. Let's look first at 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33, or 34 and 35, brother, I'm sorry. 14, 34, 35. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. People have taken this passage, built ideologies completely around it, and just forbidden women to have any part in church. It's always been an interesting thing to me that they could sing, but they couldn't speak. You know, and so I, you know, you got to figure those kind of things out on your own. But here's the thing we're going to look at today. Cultural fact. This is, this is the church. He's writing in 1 Corinthians. The Corinthian church is a Greek back, a church. This back, background is in Greek. It's during the Roman, uh, Greco-Roman uh, era. But Greeks who valued tradition resented a woman speaking in public where men other than their husbands were present. This is a, there's some cultural stuff that's surrounding what Paul is talking about. That's what we're talking about first today. He talks about some, a, a word or two words, informed listeners in verse 35. Informed listeners customarily ask questions during lectures, including lectures on Scripture. In other words, if you had an education and you were sitting in the church at Corinth and you had a question about what the speaker was saying, you could answer, you could ask a question because you were informed at some level on the subject. However, if you were a novice, 
In other words, if you were younger and you hadn't had the education yet, or you were just beginning your educational process in learning and understanding, or if you were a woman, then you were to learn quietly so that you wouldn't slow others down with inappropriate questions. Now, you have to recognize 2,000 years ago or so, women, women were not permitted to learn in most educational circles unless it was a woman of great stature and from a, from a, military, uh, from a political standpoint. And so they are told in culture to be quiet because their questions are offensive to the learned men that are in the room. Okay? Some of you are giggling, some of you are laughing, some of you are going, ah, I'm mad about that. Just relax. It's okay. <laughs> Truth of the matter, culture, women had far less education than men of the same social classes. Jewish women would hear scripture explained in synagogue, but they were virtually never trained as disciples, nor were they taught to recite the, uh, the way the, the young boys were taught. They weren't given access to the education, even in scriptural education, that boys or men were in that day. They were told in that same passage to ask their husbands at home, what is that all about? Do I, you, mean I, you mean I can't ask a question, Phil? i got to wait till I get home with my husband. What if I'm not married and I have a question? Who do I ask then? See, all this stuff just kind of swirls around these issues. So here's the thing. Women in the Greek culture, women usually married by age 18. But many of them were married much younger, some as young as 12 years old. Now, Greek women were on average 12 years younger than their husbands. And because of the Greek culture, husbands often viewed, they're often viewed their wives as being like children. Because, quite frankly, they were. They were. All right? Few took an interest in their wives' learning, with some exceptions, not many, but some. In Paul's culture, the encouragement for wives to learn, even privately, would have been considered very, very progressive. Case in point, Luke 11. Mary is sitting at, sitting at the feet of Jesus while he's teaching. Martha's flittering around, fixing everything. Martha's mad at Mary because she's doing something she's not supposed to be doing culturally. But Mary is seated at the feet of Jesus, learning at the feet of Jesus while her sister is doing what, in those days, a woman was expected and basically required to do by culture. So Mary is breaking the law of culture in her day by sitting at the feet of Jesus learning. That would have never happened. It was a cultural no-no. Also speaks to her tenacity. 1 Timothy 2, let's look at the other passage. 11 and 12. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over man. Over a man, she must be quiet. What about the words quietness and submission? Actually, it says full submission. Once again, we're talking about the church at Ephesus. We just talked about Corinth. Now we're talking about Ephesus. Ephesus is also a church that is dominantly in Greek culture. That area, Ephesus area, valued men, women's uh, meekness and quietness. Generally, teachers expected new students, even women who are allowed to come to the synagogues or the house churches, to learn quietly and submissively. But there's another piece connected to, to Ephesus that's not necessarily connected to, to the church at Corinth, and that is that there is an influx of false teachers around the church at Ephesus, which Timothy addresses. Because in, in this particular situation in Ephesus that, that Paul is speaking to Timothy about, false teachers are specifically targeting the women of that church. 
Verse, chapter 3, verse 6 of 2 Timothy says, they're, speaking of the false teachers, they're the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women. Gullible because they're not allowed to learn. They don't have, they don't have access to the education that men have. They don't have access to the, to, to the society things the way that men do. And because of that, these, these false teachers are coming in and they're twisting the word of God and they're, and they're worming their way into the lives of these women who are at home while their husbands are at work. And it's creating some problems in the home, creating problems in marriages, and a whole bunch of other stuff that's going on when you read the backstory. Both in Jewish and Gentile cultures of the day, it was extremely rare and in some circles completely unheard of for a woman to teach or to be an authority over a man. And that particular situation in Ephesus would make it even more, uh, that warning, such a warning more viable because people were misinterpreting the scripture. Women were less trained in the scripture. The false teachers were targeting women who were, as noted, less trained to spread their teachings. And it was working in the church at Ephesus at the time of Paul's writing to Timothy. So that's the cultural backstory, okay? Now let's talk about the context. Let's talk about the context of both these passages. The context of 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2 both deal with order in public worship. That's what it's dealing with. You read the whole chapter, both those chapters, you understand he's talking about the way public worship services are supposed to be going and, the, and the bringing order back to them because they had gotten into a lot of chaos and to a lot of confusion. History tells us that in the church at Corinth, that women and men were not allowed to sit together in the public worship service. There were some occasions where that wasn't the case across that culture, but it's very, very rare. Even to this day, if you go to uh, Israel and you go to the Western Wall, women pray on one side of the wall and men pray on the other side of the wall. So there's a huge cultural scenario that's connected to all of this. At Corinth, in particular, they weren't allowed to sit together. The men sat on one side, the women sat on the other, as was the custom of that particular culture. But here's, here's another kicker that, that really kind of, kind of opens it up for us. There are some archaeological discoveries in that area that suggest that possibly the church at Corinth actually had a balcony in it. It may have been a converted theater or something like that. The men were sitting on the, they would sit down on the, on the, on the floor level. Women, because they were not learned, were told to sit up in the balcony. The speaker is talking to the educated men that are down here, having a conversation with women up top. Maybe they can't understand what's being said. Maybe they're looking at one another going, what did he say? I can't understand what he said. And so they're having a conversation up there. It disrupts the, the public worship service. And so Paul says, be quiet. Ask your husbands who are seated right here in front of the speaker when you get home what he was talking about. Everybody all right? All right. Now. Was I there? No. But neither were you. <laughs> so we're looking at all of this from a perspective of what does the culture say and what is the context of these two passages that have caused a lot of pain, a lot of harm, and a lot of controversy for hundreds of years, really, in the church. Herein is the problem in the particular church at, at Corinth. Something would be spoken by the speaker. Women would begin to discuss it and or even ask their husband, even if they're sitting across the aisle, what did he say? What did he say? And so it was creating problems. It was disrupting the service. In, the, in verses recorded in 1 Corinthians and, and 1 Timothy 2, in both instances, women were told to keep quiet in church 
It is for the purpose of bringing order in that service because of disruptions that were being caused by undisciplined discussions. You have to understand that, that for hundreds of years in, in Jewish culture and in the culture of, of ancient times, women have been possessions and not people. They were not considered people. They were possessions by the man that, that they married or that they were sold to, however you want to look at it. And so now Christianity comes on the scene, and all of a sudden now they're, they're, they're worshiping together. They, they can have a Jesus on their own. They don't have to go through their husband to get Jesus because the, the veil in the temple was torn, and Jesus died for all mankind and all this. And, and, and we see women taking a huge lead in, in Jesus' life even when he was on this earth. It's different from what their culture had been for hundreds of years. But we see here in 1 Timothy and in 1 Corinthians that this undisciplined conversations that were being had was causing disruptions in the public worship. And so Paul steps in. He goes, Timothy, you've got to tell them you've got to be quiet. To the church at Corinth, he writes directly and says, be quiet in church. Wait. If you've got a question about what's being said, wait until you get home. Have a conversation with your husband. And he goes into this great discourse in an earlier chapter about the man is the covering for the wife and all this kind of stuff. That's really not connected to what I'm talking about here this morning, but it's a part of it. So the culture tells us that there was a problem because now women are being brought into Christianity and bringing Britain into church services. The context tells us that there was an issue with older in the public worship service. So the question is this, is it biblical for women to speak in the church? Is it biblical for women to preach or be a pastor? So let's look at the third, the third thing that we have to consider. Let's look at the whole counsel of God. Can women be in leadership in the church? Can they be in authority over a man? Well, let's go back in the Old Testament. Go all the way back to Judges. And you see a lady named Deborah. Deborah is the judge over Israel. Verse 4 says this, Deborah, a prophet. And then he says, the wife of Lapidoth. So she's married. But yet she's the one leading, not her husband. Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at the time. You read the whole chapter of, of Judges 4, and you see her making some very, very interesting decisions, how she would judge all of the cases and all the conflict in, in, in Israel at the day. She's the leader of the entire nation. Well, that ain't a church service. That's semantics. Leading is leading. And she's obviously leading the nation. She's obviously, when it comes to national affairs, leading her husband, who is mentioned here. But also, she gives the general some instruction. I want, this is how I want you to go after these guys. I want you to go fight these guys. And he goes, he goes I'm not going to go unless you go. And then Deborah goes, look, if I go, you don't get credit, dude. I get the credit. And the dude goes, fine with that. So she leads the army into battle. So what do we do with that? That's just one verse, though, right? Okay, let's move further. Luke chapter 2, let's move into the New Testament, because some of you probably went, well, that's an Old Testament passage, and we're in the New Testament. Okay, you ask. So here we go. Luke 2. Whew, it's hot up here. Luke 2, right off the bat. There was also a prophet named Anna. A prophet named Anna. She was very old. She was married for seven years. Her husband died. And she was 84 at this time, but she never left the temple. 
It's interesting, what was her role in the temple to me? We don't see, now one thing we do not see ever in Scripture is a, lady, is a female operating in the office uh, of priest in the priestly order. Okay? He said, well, some of you might be going, well, that's enough for me, then they can't, they can't be a pastor. Hang on. Because there are some things that you've got to see in the New Testament that may change the way you think about that. Anna is a prophet. She stays at the temple. She worships God night and day. She fasts, she prays, she does all this kind of stuff. When they bring Jesus, she comes up to him at that very moment, and she gives thanks to God and speaks about the child to all looking for the redemption of Israel. Anna's a very prominent woman in the religious times, religious life of Israel in the, in the time of Christ. Acts 18. You've heard of Apollos, right? Apollos is this educated man. Acts 18 tells us. He has a thorough knowledge, look, a thorough knowledge of Scripture. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. He spoke with great fervor, taught about Jesus accurately, though he only knew the baptism of John. Verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Here is a scholar that's being taught by a woman. Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla is the wife she is mentioned first. Big deal. Big deal. She's prominent in that role. She brings Apollos, who's an educated intellectual scholar, if you will, who's been teaching and preaching. She brings him to her home, exercises biblical authority, and instructs him more thoroughly in the ways of Jesus. Everybody all right? Romans 16. This is the one that just kind of seals it for me. Junia. She is the wife of Andronicus. Verse 7 says, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding. They are outstanding among the apostles. And they were in Christ before I was. Junia is the wife of Andronicus. Paul lists her as a fellow apostle. Apostles were responsible for going, setting up house churches, setting up churches in locations, leading that church until a pastor could be appointed or a group of people could be appointed. They were there. So what is she doing? You say, well, she's not mentioned first. No, but she's, she's, she is mentioned as an apostle. Andronicus is an apostle. Junia is an apostle. Romans 16, 1, Phoebe. Anybody heard of Phoebe? I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in I can't pronounce that word. Starts with a C. But here she is, a deacon in the church. Now, interesting to note that in the book of Acts, deacons were believed to be the pastors of the local churches. Deacon and pastor were interchangeable. They both mean servant. But Phoebe is commended here. She is commended to the church in Rome as a deacon, as a pastor. Acts 10. I love Acts 10 because this is where we get in. This is where you and I, as Gentiles, we get in in Acts 10. First time I went to, to Caesarea Philippi, 
I mean, Caesarea by the sea, I'm sitting in, the, in this amphitheater there on, on the Mediterranean, and, and Dr. Rutland is teaching, and he's talking about this, and I'm overwhelmed when I realize that I'm sitting in the place, in the town, where Jesus was introduced and opened up to all of us who are non-Jewish people. And it's in that very place that Peter has the vision. And it's in that place he goes to, he talks to Cornelius and all this kind of stuff. But here's the deal. This is what Peter said. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accept everyone who fears him and does what is right. Paul himself says in Galatians 3, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. He further states in 1 Corinthians 12 that the body is one. No part can say I'm not a part of the body. No part can say I don't need you. In other words, every, every male on this planet needs every female in Christianity because we're all a part of the body of Christ. And we can't say that you're not a part of the body. We can't say that because we're all one and there's no favoritism. Joel prophesied in the Old Testament, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Old men dream dreams, young men see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. It's reemphasized by Peter in Acts 2 after Pentecost was poured out. I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. So what does that tell us about the whole counsel of God? We've looked in the Old Testament. We've looked in the New Testament. Well, let's look at this passage, Ephesians 4. So Christ himself gave. You see, when, when, when deacons were chosen in the early part of, chapter, of the book of Acts, God instructs the apostles to tell the local church, choose for yourself. You choose seven men. You choose seven men. There have been a lot of, there are a lot of uh, religious traditions and denominations that believe that, deacon, that being a deacon necessarily is a calling. Deacon in the early part of the book of Acts shifted somewhere about, I don't know, a third of the way through it, and it became, they became more pastoral in their role. But a deacon is someone that's chosen by their peers, by the body. But here in Ephesians, in Ephesians 4, John's saying this, Jesus gave himself, he himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers, to equip his people for good works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So let's look at this. In the New Testament, he gave apostles. We know the, the, the big guys. We know Paul and Peter, all those guys. But what about Junia? She's an apostle. He gave prophets. Anna is a prophet. He gave an evangelist. Anna, we're doing the work of the evangelist. What do you say? It didn't say that. It said this. She spoke about the child to everyone she came in contact with. What does an evangelist do? They proclaim Jesus wherever they go. She's working and operating in the office of the evangelist. What about pastor teacher? Well, what about Priscilla and Phoebe? They're both pastors. They're both teachers. And they both have taught men. Apollos is an incredibly prominent man, an incredibly prominent scholar in, in, in biblical times following Jesus Christ. But yet Priscilla is one of the leading people that teaches him more adequately the ways of Jesus Christ. The fact that these ladies were even mentioned by name in Scripture means that they had a prominent role in, in the culture of the day. So finally, as we look at the whole counsel of God, as we looked at the context of the passage, 
and with all the cultural understanding that we have today, I believe, and I'm just saying for Phil right now, I believe there is scriptural basis for women as pastors, women as teachers, and speaking within the local church and leading men at times. I believe it's there. Make up your own mind. But as for me and this house, Generations United Church, we will embrace women in ministry in the church. We will embrace that. We will. <clears throat> now, all that being said, I am not getting into a political debate about this whatsoever. That has no place in the church. Okay? I'm simply answering a question based on what the Word of God and what I believe in my attempt to rightly divide the Word of Truth and correctly handle the Bible, how we should operate in the 21st century and how we will operate at Generations United Church. Amen?